Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we've got a lot to get through. We've got uh, sewage, we've got strikes. Rory and I also want to talk about Tigray, which is getting next to no coverage uh, when it should be. Uh, we've got some brilliant questions from you again this week that we'll get to in tomorrow's The Rest is Politics Question Time. And if you can't wait till tomorrow to hear that particular episode, you can get it right now by heading to therestispolitics.com. You sign up to Trip Plus. And that will also help you listen to every episode ad-free, should you want to do that, as well as supporting the podcast. Well, coming up in today's show, dying embers, the Tory leadership race, horrible state of Britain's rivers. Um, But let's get started. How are you, Alistair? Well, it's funny, but you talk about the rivers, because Fiona and I have just been for an extraordinary swim in an alpine lake beyond Alp d'Huez. I thought Alp d'Huez, which is one of the famous... Tour de France climbs. I thought that was it. You get to the top and that's the end of the world. But no, you go on and there are these extraordinary lakes. And so we were swimming there. And do you know what, Rory? It was possible to swim without anybody telling you you should keep your mouth closed at all times, which is what the advice is now if you swim in parts of (laughs) the sea sea off, off, off the United Kingdom coast. If I can tempt you up to the Lake District, I think you could probably swim in one of our lakes up there without having to keep your mouth closed. Um, you were right up on the top, of, on the edge of Mont Blanc, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And the, and the, the water is so fresh. It was just so nice. But I think we should probably start. Should we start with the um, this whole sewage thing? Because it does seem extraordinary that yeah. in Britain 2022, this is happening. Yeah, let, let's, well, let's start with maybe a bit of definition of the problem. I'd love to also talk a little bit about the strangeness of my encounter with it when I was the environment minister under Liz Truss, in fact. Mm. and how we discussed this stuff back in 2016 and where we've got to. But, yeah, starting with that, I mean, basically we're dealing with a situation in which a lot of sewage is now being released into our rivers and onto our beaches, and much more than was the case in the past, and people are pretty disgusted, right? Well, you, you, you mentioned there that you worked for, for Liz Truss, and I see that Pippa Creerer, who's moved from The Mirror to The Guardian, The Mirror where she did the Partygate story, she's got a very important story, I think, in The Guardian, where – She's detailing, and maybe you were part of this, Rory. You may have to fess up here. She was detailing the cuts that Liz Liz Truss made in the budget for tackling water pollution between 2014 and 2016 when she cut environment agency funding by £235 million, including £24 million, which was for environmental protection, including the surveillance of water companies in the prevention of dumping raw sewage. So Labour is running the line that, Liz Truss has sewage on her hands. Is the sewage on your hands as well, Rory? You're absolutely right. The sewage on Liz Truss's hands is also the sewage on my hands. And I've been really interested in the story. So as you said, we're in a situation where I think 335,000, uh, I don't know, is it 335,000 tons or hours? But anyway, 335,000 something's going on with our sewage. 
I think 375,000 times raw sewage has been discharged into English rivers uh, in the last year. You, can, you, can't have hours of, you can't have hours of sewage. Surely that's, that's not a metric we, we need, Rory. It, it is disgusting. And people are reporting that they're going swimming off beaches and uh, they're having to leave the water because pieces of human turd come floating past them while they're going for their swim. Uh, people are obviously getting waterborne diseases. So how do we end up in this this situation? I, I think, so I'm, I'm now going to play the role of trying to explain what it's like being a minister dealing with these situations and how we got ourselves in the poo, as it were, or, or my memory of how we got ourselves in the poo. So first thing to understand is that the British system uh, basically has our sewage and our water flowing in the same pipes. And in a sensible modern system, you don't do that. You put your rainwater in a different pipe to your sewage. If you put your sewage and your water in the same pipe and you get a lot of rainfall, you get the sewage potentially overflowing out of that pipe. And you can overflow it in one of two places. You can either overflow it close to the location, so close to people's houses, schools, and that sometimes happens. I remember as an MP in Cumbria, the loss of uh, sewage on the edge of um, people's houses in Penrith, or you put it into rivers, which was traditionally, of course, what we always did in Britain. The cost of actually changing, or this is what we were told, and it was true, but the cost of actually changing to a system where the water water drainage and the sewage was separate, we were told was between 350 and 600 billion pounds. And that billion. probably would have landed, billion pounds, and that would have landed wow. on people's, people's bills. So mm. that would have meant for the last 30, next 30 years, you'd be paying 600 to 1,000 pounds more on your water bill mm. to try to sort it out. At the same time, we were told, and I think this is true, that the actually water quality had been improving in Britain. Whereas in, uh, when you came into office, I think only a third of our beaches were clean. By uh, sort of 2019, two thirds of the beaches were considered excellent. And partly because we were following directives and guidelines set by the European Union. Absolutely, who were pushing for very, very uh, high water quality. And yeah. then we come to the weird thing of priorities, which is at the same time as people were asking for more investment in sewerage and water, we were dealing with a situation when I came in where the first thing I heard when I arrived at my desk was that I think 63,000 people a year were dying prematurely of air pollution in the country. Mm. And I was trying to work out how we could get hold of a few hundred million to deal with air pollution. And then the flooding kicked off. And I think a lot of this problem is resources were diverted to try to deal with the flooding, particularly because of what happened in 1516. But how much of the problem, Rory, is, is, and is this sort of, a trend that we're now seeing with Liz Truss is that she is, for whatever reason, a, an ideological cutter. She believes in the small state. And, you know, you've talked before about how when you did work for her, she sort of kept telling you, one, not to be interesting, and two, could you keep finding things to cut? Now, if that becomes an ideology, is this what we end up with? It's a definitely an example of the risk here. So I think the Environment Agency budget, if I remember, was up at about sort of two and a half billion pounds a year. Mm. And so I think when they cut whatever it was, 200 million, the argument was that that was less than 10% of the budget and they could find the savings. And what happened in this case is they, uh, we moved to a situation in which the water companies were supposed to regulate themselves. And that was a very, very bad idea. I think privatization in water had some successes, it kept the bills at about a pound a day per person. But it only works when you have really tough regulation. This kind of privatization only works if you have tough regulation. In this case, the regulation was watered down so that you didn't have the EA 
monitoring enough what these companies were doing. Very interesting piece by Kimberly Cavendish, uh, who was worked in David Cameron's policy unit, um, and I think a you know genuinely insightful and bright conservative, if I can say that. I think she's still a conservative, um, but she had a piece in the I think it was in the FT this week, essentially saying her view: water privatization has to go down as a failure. And I just wonder what you thought of that. There was, a, there were, there were, I don't know if you saw already. There were, I think we had more questions this week on this sewage issue than anything else, uh, bar none. It was like it was overwhelming, and and one of them was was very much directed you having last week. This is from Peter Collis, following Rory Stewart's very untory like condemnation of energy company excess profits. What does he make of the water company's behaviour? So I was a defender of water privatisation. I know it's very unpopular, actually. I think overwhelming majority of the population would like to renationalise water. But as a little bit, it was true with British Rail. We forget just how filthy our beaches were when it was uh, nationalised. And the problem, of course, with with water when it was nationalised is the investment in water was competing with investment in health, pensions and everything else we needed to spend money on. So there was huge amounts of leakage huge amounts of filth. During 30 years of privatization, leakage went down by about a third and the beaches went from about a third being excellent to two thirds being excellent. And it was achieved with costs to the consumer remaining the same. Basically, they didn't move in 20 years in real terms. So looking at at 2016, I concluded that it had been a success. But my lesson now is if you're going to do it, you have to regulate the hell out of it, that privatized mm. companies only work if you really regulate them hard. Rory, I was looking up, vaguely remembering that Scottish Water was publicly owned still. So I was yeah. checking out Scottish Water to see just, you know, what the, the status was. But before I even got into that, you know how obsessed I am about the three Ps, populism, polarization, yeah. and truth. Got you, yes, yeah. When you go into the Scottish Water website, they have their own three Ps rule. The Scottish Water Three P's rule is you must only put paper, pee, and poo in the toilet. I've got a septic tank at home, and I spent eight and a half hours of my life that I will never get back in the middle of a sewage pipe pulling oh. bits of um, sort of baby wipe out of it. And by the end of it, I had to felt I had to throw away my Wellington boots, every strip yeah, of clothing absolutely. I was wearing. Um, but no, I, I developed I developed a really strong view about people who put baby wipes down. down well, if boots. you go onto the Scottish Water website, you will find that the lead item is Nature Calls, bin the wipes, and they are they are leading a campaign to get plastic, all plastics taken out of wipes. Apparently, it's the plastic and the wipes. I, I, I think, I, and I'd also encourage, if we want to really achieve this campaign, I do think that spending seven, eight hours trying to clean this stuff out of a septic tank is a good training not to put a wipe down the loose. So. I think every MP should spend at least seven hours in a septic <laughs> tank. You, you very uh, nobly um, admitted that there is sewage on your hands and sewage on Liz Truss's hands, but there's also sewage on the hands of all these Tory MPs who voted against the Labour amendment, the Environment Bill in the Commons last year. And I, and I do think this is, I'm going to try not just to be the sort of party political hack here, but I do think this is important. So Labour tabled an amendment to the Environment Bill that would have given a legally binding end date for sewage discharges and targets along the way. And some Tories voted for it, but it was defeated. And it was defeated in part because this is just politics. This is what the government governments and whips offices do. The government promised their own amendment 
and which they said to their kind of would-be rebels on the Tory side that it was going to do the same thing. But when that amendment finally appeared in the House of Lords, it committed water companies to a, a totally unspecific reduction with no targets and no deadline. And that meant that just reducing your sewage discharge by, you know, half a litre in five years, that would still be lawful. And that's what Tories voted for. And I think this is why it is cutting through to the extent that it is. And I mean, a lot, some of the comments we've got, so heaven knows what the MPs themselves are getting, but we've had this on our Twitter feed and on, on email, is people really angry at these Tory MPs who are saying how outrageous it is that the water companies are doing this when they couldn't do it unless it was lawful, and it's the Tory MPs that have made it lawful. So I think there are two different things. I think some of these water companies are breaking the law. So Southern Water just got fined nearly £100 million for breaking the law. So in some cases, the regulations regulators have found them out, and these people are actually doing things illegal. The, the bigger question, I guess, is getting into a, a conversation which I don't have all the details on, on what the cost of that Labour amendment would have been. So as I say, to actually sort out the entire sewage system of Britain mm. is many hundreds of billions of pounds. Yeah, it would be good to try to really get into, are we talking about a £150 billion proposal or a £10 mm. billion proposal? Because my guess is the government's resistance was treasury driven. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I guess that may be right. Just by the way, just just a shout out for Southern Water that you mentioned there. Um, because as you know, Roy, I regularly, uh, mainly to try and show you up, I put out these pictures of the extraordinary research I do Um ahead of our, of, of our discussions. And Southern Water, somebody who works with Southern Water spotted that I had a, a long list out on sewage. A fair play to them. They sent me a rebuttal which says, we are investing £2 billion between 2020 and 2025. And also made the point, which again, I, which I must admit, I didn't know, because this is a point that gets made the whole time. All they do is pay dividends to shareholders rather than invest. We've paid no dividends to shareholders since 2016 2017. So at least they're trying to get in there. That's very smart. He's, well, you mean he spotted it on your desk? You're, you put out your tweet and he was reading the handwriting on your desk there, well there, enough there was, to They were somehow reading my absolutely appalling <laughs> mixture of log had, and it was just a lot of stats about sewage. I want to give credit to the, the, the energy and innovation of that, that employee in Southern Water who should be promoted immediately. I think it may have been a freelance, but anyway. Um, just while you talk about energy, Rory, I'm yeah. going to give you some names of some politicians, okay? Yeah. And I want to ask you whether you can tell me what they all have in common, okay? Okay. Yep. Peter Carrington, Lord yep. Carrington. Yeah. Eric Varley. Yep. Tony Benn. Yes. Uh, Nigel Lawson. Yes. Peter Walker, Cecil Parkinson, John Wakeham. No idea. They're all big names. Would you, would you say they're all quite big names? They're all big names, but I'm really struggling. I was I was sort of going on resignation with Carrington. No. Then when you got on to Ben, I thought it was some public school <laughs> thing you were doing. <laughs> I'll and tell then you what I lost it is. you. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Listen, this was a very difficult question. You should not feel bad about not knowing this. The answer is they were all secretaries of state for energy. And until 1992, energy was a cabinet seat job. It was abolished by John Major. He made it part of the DTI. That stayed the same throughout the entirety of the time that New Labour was in power until Gordon Brown in 2008 created the Department of Energy and Climate Change, and that was Ed Miliband, Chris Hune, uh, Ed Davey, and Amber Rudd. She was yep. the last one. Yep. And then Theresa May, she transferred it to Bayes, 
Yeah. But I just think that's extraordinary. If you think that was clearly seen back in the days when I was a journalist, that's when I thought of this. Mm. These Energy was like a huge job. Is that not partly because of the fact that we needed to keep the lights on? I mean, it's partly because it was incredibly difficult for 20, 30 years to actually make sure that we were burning enough coal, keeping the lights on, etc. Yeah, but isn't that where we're heading now? Well, we definitely, I mean, I think the, the logic of tying it to climate change makes a lot of sense. You've been looking at German energy policy too, haven't you? Going to tell well, I think, I think what's happening again. in Germany is fascinating. And Germany's actually got far bigger reserves of gas than we have. And yet they have just announced, uh, the economy minister, Robert Harbeck, has announced that um, offices are going to have to keep their temperatures at or below 19 degrees Celsius, 66 degrees Fahrenheit. Buildings, monuments and adverts will no longer be illuminated night at night as part of the energy saving measures. Hanover has cut off hot water in public buildings, swimming pools, sports halls and gyms. Gosh, Hanover is pretty cold in the winter. You go to the swimming pool well, in the winter, get a cold shower. <laughs> that's that's pretty that's pretty tough that's tough stuff. But this is back to this is back to Russia and Ukraine and their dependence. Um but so Russia has has got this new little game going. I don't know if you followed this, but basically they've 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 reduced supplies from Nord Stream One. Now, because Nord Stream 2 has now been, you know, put on ice because of Ukraine and sanctions, etc., Moscow has now announced that they've had to lower the gas flows because they had a turbine that had to be repaired. It was repaired in Canada. And now that they've said they can't get it up and running properly because of the Western sanctions against them. So it's a classic sort of Putin game. But what it means is that the the gas flows, which were already operating at 40% of capacity, and that have now fallen to 20%. And that's why the Germans are having to bring in these really Door dramatic stuff. measures. And I, th- I think we will, I think there's a danger that we will end up there if we're not careful. And, and the point I was making about the Secretary of State, I mean, here's one for you. Who is the current energy minister? Blimey, is it something in quasi Quartengs responsibility? <laughs> it is, is it in his department? It's, it's, apparently it's Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie Trevelyan. Ah, yes. Now, I didn't know that until I looked it up. So I'm not criticising you for that one either. We're coming to the sort of dying embers of this Tory leadership race, aren't we? And it looks almost certain as though Liz Truss is going to come through. I mean, the the latest figures, unless she has some incredible gaffe, which oddly in this new world of politics, gaffes don't seem to undo you, do they? I mean, I was always hoping this with Boris Johnson, that he'd say something so daft that he'd blow up before he made it through. Um, So she's probably going to be prime minister, isn't she? And we've already got a sense, I think, of what her cabinet's going to be. Um, and it's, there was a very interesting Bloomberg article. I don't know how accurate it is, but they were suggesting Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly, Home Secretary Suella Braverman, Education Secretary Kemi Badenoch, Environment Secretary Ranil Jayawardena. And, and, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, Secretary of State for levelling up. I mean, I, I, that's what made me think the whole thing was a spoof. <laughs> I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Secretary of State for Leveling Up. This, and and, and Samela Braverman as Home Secretary, that one. So we've had a, an Attorney General who thinks it's okay to break the law, so she gets put in charge of law and order. Is that where we're heading? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? But just a couple of things about that. I mean, the, the first thing I guess is that that is very, you know, obviously, it's a much, much more diverse cabinet than we've ever seen before, if that happened. Very interesting. Five very senior jobs. Um, secondly, it's a very young cabinet. We're going to be mm. looking at a situation in which almost all of them are going to be in their late 30s, early 40s. And I, I was thinking about the way in which Brexit has created a total break with the past. It's a 
effectively meant that any of the people who were in Theresa May's cabinet or David Cameron's cabinet, let alone you know, the sort of conservative governments before that, have been pushed aside. And the, the um, party is now being dominated by people who came in in 2015. Mm. No, she's, I mean, it's a new party. You know, the, the, the Tory party has become the Brexit party and now it's become the post-Brexit party and it's even more right wing. Just on this diversity point, though, I was at an event recently where Fiona was chairing an event and I was in the audience and Simon Woolley, you know, Lord Woolley, Simon Woolley, who started Operation Black Vote, and he and I were chatting afterwards. And it was it was at a time when one of the narratives was going, isn't it amazing that you've got all these non-white faces in the Tory leadership? And he made the point that they may be uh, non-white, but what he did say was he, he'd never felt that these were people who really felt that they were part of the struggle to try to get better rights and representation for uh, ethnic minorities. And I thought that was a fair point. And, and the other thing, you know, I know Rory and I, I was desperate to try and get through the whole program without mentioning it, but Kwasi Kwarteng, isn't he another one who went to your bloody school? He, he definitely went to Eton, but actually a lot of the others came from much more straightforward backgrounds. So it's, it's not, it's, it's a very different, mm. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a Tory cabinet that I would like. I think it's no. becoming much, much more right wing. Well, I think Kemi Badenoch. I think Kemi Badenoch. Some of her ideas are so far to the right; they they terrify me. And I think the idea of her in charge of education just horrifies me. But it is very interesting that if we ended up with a cabinet like that, it would be much more diverse than the Labour shared cabinet. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and and that and that that becomes a problem for Labour for sure. Um, but I think it was you know you and I. We should should we should we let our read our listeners in on a secret that we did a joint interview yesterday for Spiegel magazine, uh, Der Spiegel in Germany. And you you said something that I'd not heard you say before about Liz Truss that I found fascinating. You said that she sits in meetings and tests people on their mental arithmetic. What's all that about? Yeah, she's, she's, it's very interesting. So she's somebody who I think her father was a maths professor. So it must represent some sort of childhood trauma. I imagine that's what her dad did to her when she was at the, the breakfast table. But no, there's a real sense that she, um, yeah, she, she loves testing mental arithmetic. I, I think it's that she's very, she was very interested in economics. She reads economics. Uh, she reads books about economics. She's obviously thinks about departments very much in terms of budgets and cuts. And I think that's very much part of her style. It's it's much less about focusing on the the particular nature of the department. So I, I never felt that in DEFRA she had a particular deep affection for rural affairs or landscape. She she sees it very much. Um, I think it's sort of kind of IBM business management of the 1980s. Mm, mm. Is that was that your sense of her? I mean, because you you you'd said on one of the earlier podcasts that. Um, when you were both backbench MPs and she said to you she couldn't understand why you were remotely interested in foreign affairs, she couldn't think of anything more boring. And then, of course, now she sort of parades as the as the foreign secretary. I mean, do you, do you think she's – Matthew Paris had a brutal piece about her at the weekend where he said that the one thing she's got is this sort of overweening ambition. I mean, do you think that's all there is or do you think there's more to it? Well, it's a fascinating piece. I mean, Matthew is, 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 is you know, a very loyal Tory who's always <laughs> trying his best to make excuses for the Conservative Party. But his big, um, his big insight, which I think is a really good one, is what you see is what you get. And he made that point about Boris Johnson as well, that it's tempting presented with a slightly eccentric person like Boris Johnson or Liz Truss to imagine that there are hidden depths that you're not seeing. But generally, the truth is that what you see is what you get. There, there mm. isn't a whole dimension of hidden depths, that, that they are as they appear. It's very, if nobody's seen it, 
do look up Matthew Paris on this trust. No, it, it was, it was, it was, I mean, it, the headline was something like, you know, there really is no more to her than meets the eye. Um, and, and the thing about, so, so what was she, what was she like then? What people who are going to work for her now, you, you having done that, what was, what was actually, how did, what was your feeling towards her as a, as a, as a junior minister when she was the secretary of state? Did you get any sense of? I, I found it quite, um, traumatizing. I mean, it may be my, my, um, my personality type. I always felt that I was sort of rushing from pillar to post. She'd stop me in the lift. She'd say, where's the 25 year environment plan? And I'd rush off and I'd try to write the 25 year environment plan. And then it would turn out she'd asked three different people in the department to write it as well. So we were writing these plans in parallel. And she's quite a sort of, um, one of my great moments was I was sitting again with a 25 year environment plan. She'd rejected, I think the fourth draft of it and, uh, said, this is absolutely, you know, this is not at all what I want. Go and rewrite it. And finally, I plucked up the courage to say, Secretary of State, what is it that you don't like about it? Is it A? Is it B? Is it C? To help us redraft it. So she said, Rory, I think everyone else around this table knows what I don't like about the plan. And all the other civil servants kind of nod like this. Uh, and when she leaves the room, I turn to them, I say, what is it? And they go, oh, I'm really sorry. I was just, just a bit scared there. Sorry not to back you up. Do you, th- do you think she tries to, it, does she operate a little bit by fear? Well, it's a, it's a sort of, it's very difficult to know because she also has this sort of big smile. So you're never quite sure whether the whole thing's a joke, mm. but she certainly likes provoking and teasing. That's very much her, her style of leadership. All right, Rory, let's uh, go to a break. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics. Me, Rory Stewart. Me, Alistair Campbell. So we should mention our upcoming live show in Blackpool. So Alistair and I will be there on Saturday, the 8th of October in the classic venue of the Winter Gardens. Tickets selling very fast. Please search Rest is Politics Blackpool if you want to get involved. And we'd love to see you because we're very keen to, people have criticised us in the past, not doing enough in the North. So come and see us in Blackpool, please. And Alistair, you must have some tales about Blackpool. I have a lot of tales about Blackpool. A lot of our best and worst <laughs> party conferences were there. I've got to say, Roy, just b- before we leave the Winter Gardens, you yep. were criticised last week by one of our listeners. Or oh, I was asked Here to pu- pull you up on the fact that you don't even mention the podcast in your Twitter biography, and it still doesn't mention it. So I am, I'm taking an executive decision here, Rory. Yeah. I want you to change your pinned tweet Yep. When, which was on the 14th of the 7th, all about plugging some BBC Radio 4 programme you did. I think you need to change your pinned tweet to have a link to the Winter Gardens Blackpool, October the 8th. That's I good. That. Okay, I, I will do that. I'll make a little <laughs> note and I'll make sure I do that as soon as we're done with this show. Now tell us about Blackpool. Right, Blackpool. So I guess my favourite story about Blackpool 
That was where we did the Clause 4, the famous when Tony Blair announced the review of the Constitution, and that was one of the hardest things to keep secret until the moment. We wanted to keep it an absolute secret until he actually announced it on stage, and we managed somehow to do it, and that was a very, very, very big moment. But the, 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 the one night in Blackpool that I will literally never, ever forget was when Bill Clinton was the international guest, and Bill Clinton flew in on a – this is post – being president, flew in on a private jet. He'd been in, in Africa with um, with Kevin Spacey before Kevin Spacey got into all the trouble. Ooh, hello. Into. Yeah. Um, and Bill Clinton, I don't know if you know this, but he's got, not now because he's had a few health problems, but he used to be a terrible junk food eater. Had quite a tummy on him, didn't he? He was quite, had a bit, bit of a tummy oh, on he him. Had a bit, yeah, I mean, he, I mean he just, he's just a big guy anyway, but he, yeah. he just ate a lot. So anyway, Tony was having to do the rounds of all these fringe meetings and and, and, and Clinton suddenly says, he says, you know what? I'd, I'd love a McDonald's. I just want to get a McDonald's. Is there a McDonald's near? And I said, there's McDonald's everywhere in Blackpool. You know, we can get a McDonald's, no problem. And it, so I thought he meant get it sent in, right? But he didn't. He meant he wanted to go to McDonald's. So we went out with all the Secret Service guys and uh, we, we're, walking down, we're walking down the seafront. We walked past this, this, I don't know if it's still there, but there's this huge amusement arcade. And it says across the front, the world's greatest amusement arcade. And Bill Clinton, this kind of, you know, master of communication, who knows everything there is to know about, you know, don't take everything at face value. He says, hey, guys, it's the greatest amusement arcade in the whole world. We got to go. <laughs> so, and I'm saying, no, it probably won't be. It probably won't be. <laughs> And the other thing was we passed we passed KFC, we passed Burger King, we passed all the kind of, you know, but he, he insisted it had to be McDonald's. We must have walked for about, I don't know, two miles. And, and this is with all his security guys walking all behind All the security you. guys are around and they're all, and it's raining and, you know, it's dark. So there weren't that many people kind of spotting him until we got to McDonald's. And, and Clinton had this guy called Doug Band, who was like his kind of main bag carrier. And he said to Doug, Doug, just go and order everything. There was only about six of us plus the coppers, right? And he, he ordered, I don't know, you know, 10 buckets of nuggets and 40 Big Macs and all the chips yeah. and stuff. <laughs> and then, then what happened was, of course, people spotted him arriving. And that was a kind of big enough shock. The staff spotted him arriving. That was a big enough shock. The word then went round. And honestly, the thing about the Bush Telegraph, it was extraordinary. By the time we left, I reckon there were about 100 Blackpool landladies outside <laughs> waiting for Bill Clinton to come out. And he was absolutely brilliant with them. But he was, so that, that, that was definitely a, a, a memory I'll never forget. Give, give, give us Kevin Spacey, though, just quickly. How, how did he participate in this whole story? He was, uh, well, Kevin Spacey was a very, very good friend of Clinton's and actually is one of the, the best impersonators of Clinton I'd ever seen. And they had been on a trip to Africa. I can't remember what they were doing, but they'd been on a trip to Africa. Um, and so they were just, you know, just friends, I think. Well, so I've got a little Kevin Spacey story of my own. So I met Kevin Spacey after a performance at, um, I think it was... Uh, it was at the Old Vic. Old Vic, thank you. Old Vic, thank you very much. Old Vic, well done. Thank you. We then had dinner together at... Um, this is my name drop for the century at, at Mayor Bloomberg's house. So I'm sitting there with Kevin Spacey and I, I'm really flattered. He's taking a sort of unusual interest in me. And after the, um, after the event, I get a little text from, from Kevin saying, Rory, let me just tell you, there's a, there's a live court case going on. Just be careful where this is going. <laughs> saying, Rory, how are you? Really lovely to meet you. And I'm like, Oh, this is great. And I say to Shoshana, this is, this is extraordinary. I, I didn't know this kind of Hollywood celebrity. And then I get another text sort of 
about 45 minutes later. So it's now, I think, getting towards midnight saying, Rory, I'm just going out to a club and I just wonder whether you'd like to, to join me. And I'm like, oh, uh, thank you, Kevin. But I don't think this is really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, so anyway, after a couple more texts, I had concluded maybe Kevin Spacey was not as interested in my brain as I had believed. Right. Okay. Well, I, I don't know whether we've yet had to send any of the podcast material to a lawyer before it's being used. But uh, <laughs> so let's let's talk about having talked about Bill Clinton wanting to have a good time. Um, I've been fascinated by the reaction to Sana Marin, Prime Minister of Finland. Quick, quick introduction, Sana Marin. Before you give us a story, just for listeners who've not been concentrating on Sana Marin. So, Sana Marin is the third youngest world leader in the world. She was the youngest when she was elected, wasn't she? That's right. But Gabriel Boric, who is the Chilean kind of student revolutionary that we've talked about on the show a few weeks ago, is younger than her. And there's been a changeover government in Montenegro. We've now got a, a younger president in Montenegro. With a, lot of, with a lot of skullduggery in that one, which we probably don't have time for today. A lot of skullduggeries. But anyway, so she's in her mid-30s. 12 out of 19 of her cabinet are women. But she has had a series of different types of scandals over the years. And the latest one is to do with partying. I know, but when you even say it like that, it's like when you compare it with what we've got used to with Johnson and the criminal elements at number 10 and all the parties there. From what I can gather, she was at a party with some friends, quite celebi. There was a singer, there was a YouTube influencer, there was all this sort of, and she was kind of, she didn't look at all drunk to me. Um, she was singing. And, but it's caused an absolute sort of stir, not just in fit, not just at, not just at home, but a, a, around the world. And then she volunteered for a drugs test. So I think there's a bit of history here. So I think there's a bit of, there's a bit of sexism going on. Mm-hmm. So she, um, she's a very, she's a very beautiful woman. And there yep. was a lot of stories about the fact that she'd been photographed with a blazer without wearing any clothes underneath her blazer. There was a lot of, uh, reporting on her partying during COVID. When one of her ministers got COVID, she went out clubbing that night and mm. there was disputes about whether she checked herself. There was also scandals about her spending 845 euros a month on food uh, when she was in the uh, presidential prime ministerial residence. So she's now paying for her own breakfast. But I think somewhere underlying all this reporting is a sense that people are still struggling to come to terms with the fact that they have this very glamorous young woman as their leader. And I think the mm. partying is being used as a bit of a proxy to get at her. Yeah, but you'd, 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 because you'd think, wouldn't you, that, you know, a country that's one of the smaller countries in the world, uh, got a pretty good reputation, but actually having somebody like her as prime minister, I think would be, ought to be seen as a kind of net positive. And plus you, all the stuff you said there about very, very diverse cabinet and so forth. Um, so I think there is a lot of misogyny going on, but I, I can't, and, may, and maybe look, we don't, we don't, we don't live there. We don't know these people as well as obviously the Finnish media do. And so maybe they're reflecting a deeper story. Maybe it's a bit like with Johnson that, you know, there's something more going on that we don't know about. But I do think that when you compare it to the whole sort of party gate thing, it just strikes me as a kind of a bit of a non, a non story. I, I, I also think it's interesting because she's part of this trend that I'm obsessed with because I'm about to be 50 in January with everybody getting younger and younger and younger. I was just saying. Know, that, that, Hollywood you know, stars are just not even going to look at you twice. <laughs> you don't come and say she's not going to send me a text anymore. I've got to say that I'm, I'm 65, Rory, and I still, I still get a little bit of, you know. I'm sure you do. You're a much, much better looking man than me. Um, <laughs> so coming back to the youth of politicians, I mean, I was pointing out that 
almost whoever becomes the prime minister now in Britain, we will have had three of the youngest prime ministers in 200 years out of the last sort of four or five. And this is happening all around the world. But what's interesting about Santa Marin is that I always thought that this is a bit like the Gabriel Boric phenomenon in Chile, which is that it's because we're living in a populist age and people are looking for more anti-establishment revolutionary figures. But Santa Marin has actually the person who's done the rather brave and difficult task of pushing through Finland's application to join NATO. Hasn't she also, with Estonia, she, she's taking the lead as well in um, in not issuing visas to Russians who might want to travel there at the moment as well. Right. I didn't know that. She's also pushed very hard on reducing 90% reliance on, on Russian gas. So mm. I think she, she's a really interesting figure. Someone who entered politics, I think, at the age of 20, um, kind of classic professional politician, but on the big strategic calls, I think seems to be doing the right thing. But anyway, who are we to talk about Finnish politics? Yeah. Well, just on the British, on the on the Partygate thing, I, I, I noticed yesterday that on whichever number holiday Johnson's on at the moment, there was a picture from where he was out for dinner or lunch or something, and in the picture, right next to him, was somebody that you may know, a guy called Henry Newman, mm. friend of Carrie. Was mm-hmm. special advisor, I think, to Gove or I can't remember. Yeah, that. yeah. And but then I, somebody pointed out that the way that Johnson got out of the being done for the so-called ABBA-themed party mm-hmm. was that he was there interviewing Henry Newman for a job. Well, that's that's completely outrageous because he knows Henry Newman incredibly well. Henry Newman is one of the best friends, I think, of Carrie Simmons and always has been. There's never been any secret about that. So very odd that the police bought that line. So so I really, really, really do think, I mean, watching the Daily Mail and Nadine Dorries and these people try to stop this Privileges Committee investigation into whether Johnson misled, a.k.a. lied to Parliament, is frankly one of the most pathetic and demeaning things I've seen. And I really think it is absolutely vital that Johnson, Carrie Simmons, Newman, the lot of them, are asked on oath about what Johnson said, what Johnson knew, and what he said to Parliament about what he knew. And to be clear on this, the I don't think the bad guy in this is Henry Newman. I don't think any reason to think the bad guy is Henry Newman. I think the bad guy here is Boris Johnson, if what he's trying to claim is that he didn't know who Henry Newman was and was somehow interviewing him for a job. No, Henry's a very well-known figure in the Conservative Party and a very close friend of Carrie's. Now, um, you wanted to talk to us a little bit about Ethiopia. Give us a bit on Ethiopia. Well, first of all, before I do that, Rory, let's just more broadly on Africa. We got, I think we should be pleased about this. Don't take this badly, okay? Oh, God. Here we go. No no fewer than two K-Dorsay diplomats (laughs) that's the French Foreign Office, got in touch to say that they thought you in particular were a little bit harsh on the French in regard to Mali. Oh, go on. Tell us what they say. Can I argue back against them? Yeah, then you can argue back. Well, one of them, them, so so basically their basic argument is that the French used several thousand troops and it succeeded in preventing Mali from falling into the hands of jihadists and which which could have led to the destabilization of the entirety of West Africa, um, that if they hadn't intervened nine years ago, Mali would be a caliphate allied to the Islamic State by now, and other governments could have been toppled or destabilized. And the reason France withdrew is because there have been not one, but two overthrows of government. The first one was by uh, a military hunter, and 
They, the French were not at all happy, but thought, well, we've got to stay for the long term. The second time, even worse, and they decided, and then they got their ambassador was kicked out. The Malians brought in the Russians. You've just, you've just put your finger on what the problem is here. So, so on the one hand, the whole thing is a great success. And on the other hand, they're saying we had to leave because there are two military coups. Our ambassador was kicked out. The Russians have taken over and the Wagner group is swaggering around shooting up civilians. So you were, you were talking about their withdrawal and as it were, as if they were turning their back on it. You, I, I think the point they're making is up to the point where it became a government they could no longer work with. The French are arguing that it was a success and they have support. <laughs> so they have support in this, Rory. <laughs> From an yep. independent voice, this is somebody yep. I met last week, yep. Sophie Pedder. She is the Paris bureau chief of The Economist. She's also a keen listener to the podcast, like the K Dorsey. And she said the same. She said she felt you were very, very harsh okay. and that you maybe should have just been a bit more rounded in your assessment. Lovely. Well, let's, so Amali, let's try to frame this. So um, <laughs> it's definitely true that their intervention prevented an Islamic caliphate takeover, almost certainly, had they not been there. Um, an ISIS-affiliated group would have swept in and taken the capital. But the idea that nearly a decade after their intervention, anyone would have thought it was a good result for France essentially to be forced out of the country with its ambassador expelled, Mm -hmm. with two military coups, with an incredibly unstable corrupt government left behind, with the Russians effectively having taken over the security infrastructure of the country, and the country at such an extremity of instability that it's perfectly plausible that the capital city could fall to an insurgent group again within the next few months. Mm. I think if anyone had said that 10 years ago, I think the French might have been a bit more hesitant about going in. I mean, we're really dropping our standards very far if we're saying the only thing we're going to count this intervention on is preventing the caliphate takeover. And it's fine that you end up with a horrible military coup, a Russian-backed government. and We could maybe make this just a, the, you know, Kay Dorsey, Rory Stewart, weekly argument about Mali. Well, well let's, let's, let's now get you to irritate the Ethiopian government, because I understand that you're about to suggest that the Ethiopian government may not have been conducting itself properly in Tigray. No, I'm, I'm about to make a slightly different point, which may, on, then. may come on to that. No, I was just very struck by something that the World Health Organization Director General Tedros Ghebreyesus Gebreyesus, I can never get his name right. But you know the guy, I mean, T-A-G are his initials. And he has said that, in his view, a really poisonous form of racism is behind the lack of international attention being paid to the plight of civilians in in Tigray. Um, He has defined it as the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Six million people are unable to access basic services. And he basically said, you know, why is that this getting nothing, not even a fraction of the attention that Ukraine does. And I think there is something in this, because I can remember back in the, was it the 80s, the Ethiopian famine? I covered that for the Daily Mirror. And that was Michael Burke, BBC, did that extraordinary report from a, a, a famine refugee station, a famine station in Ethiopia. And it literally mobilized the world. And I just wonder whether this is a sort of, whether we're really here talking about compassion fatigue and also about the fact that the Ethiopian, because the Ethiopian government did try to consolidate their power in a way that they wanted to essentially bring lots of the different parties together, turn them into one party. And the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which has been a very powerful entity in, in the history of Ethiopia, modern Ethiopian politics, they refused 
They, the, the, the Ethiopian prime minister then decided because of COVID, there would be no elections. The Tigrayans went ahead with their own and the Ethiopian government reacted against that. And there's now this terrible civil war and yeah. very little international attention. So, so it's very, very, very sad. So Ethiopia was one of the great success stories of Africa, having gone in the 1980s, as you say, from having been one of the very poorest countries on earth under a crazy left-wing government with huge ethnic bias that was deliberately starving their population in the north. It then recovered and had almost, you know, decades of nearly 8% economic growth. It was one of the the few countries, along with Rwanda and possibly Botswana, that people were really pointing to in Africa as an incredible development success. And when I was at DFID, we were putting in hundreds of millions of pounds into Ethiopia and really talking about it as a model for the world. And in 2019, the Ethiopian Prime Minister, who I know a little bit, Prime Minister Abiy, got the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. So it was the real success story. And then in the last 21 months, everything has gone upside down. And that is this incredible fight between Tigray and Abiy's forces. And interestingly, that Tedros comment, so Tedros is from Tigray. So he was part of the kind of ruling ethnic elite. Mm. And that's how, and he was one of the ministers in the Ethiopian government before he became the WHO chief. Yeah. He's been attacked by the Ethiopians. So he was trying, I think, largely to say to the international community, you're putting all this money into Ukraine and you're ignoring people in Tigray because of their skin color. The Ethiopian government has gone completely furious and demanded that he resign because they think what he's saying um, is that they're accusing them of perpetrating a genocide against the Tigrayans. And even though he didn't say that, others have been saying that. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's, it's also an example of, you know, we talk a lot about the difficulty of reporting. If you were to go online at the moment and try to get up to date on Tigray and look yeah. at the BBC, look at the New York Times, look at Al Jazeera, you would really struggle to keep up to date on what is happening in yeah. the civil war in Ethiopia or indeed in the civil war in South Sudan or any of these places. And there's a real desperate need, someone, someone listening to this show, some dynamic young person of the sort about whom you're writing a book, should be setting up some easily accessible thing on the internet where one can get a really good, accurate weekly briefing on what's going on in countries like Ethiopia and South Sudan. It's so hard to do in situations like this. I, as a journalist, the, the other kind of connection I had with that part of the world at the time was I, I went to Eritrea when that the, the EPLF, you've got the TPLF, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, you had the EPLF, yeah. Eritrean People's Liberation Front. And of course, they were, as it were, liberated. They got their independence. And the other element in this situation that's quite interesting is that the Eritrean then freedom fighter, who was like a kind of Che Guevara type figure. Isaias, yeah. Isaias Afawerki, who has now become yeah. this one of the world's most <laughs> strong men dictators. Yeah. He, according to the Tigrayans, he has been responsible. His troops have been responsible, presumably on behalf of the Ethiopians, for some of the massacres that have been taking place. Now, as you say, it's very, very hard to know whether that is true. It's very hard to have that verified. And when, when I was kind of digging into this in the last few days, you, you, you do tend to have to rely on both sides saying what they want you to hear. And then you have to kind of try and apply some judgment. And, and two big themes, which are common in many of the conflicts. Firstly, the theme that you've got there, which is that Isaias goes from being the darling of the international community towards being an autocratic ruler. And in a sense, actually, that was the journey that we went on with Mugabe and Zimbabwe. Yeah. But secondly, the proxy war nature of all of this, that 
Uganda, the Ugandan president's son's been taking side and tweeting out on favor of the Tigrayans, and then the Sudanese have been getting involved from the other side. So many of these conflicts seem as though domestic, but very, very quickly get fueled by neighbors trying to get involved. I think we are, this has been quite a quite an intense series. We've gone from sewage to, to Ethiopia, um, with a small digression around the Finnish Prime Minister partying, but even that wasn't very jolly. Do you have anything jolly to finish this on? You're sitting in the beauty of France. You've been swimming in clean rivers. When I talked to you on this interview yesterday, there seemed to be sunshine, grass. Tell, tell us, give us something happy to finish this podcast on, because it's been one of our grim ones. I can't believe you're asking me to be jolly. This has never been my constitutional function. Oh, I'll tell you what. Um, no, that's not even, that's not very jolly. Go on, tell us about your swim then. Listen, it wasn't like the fairy pools in the sky, which we went there last year and it was so busy, it was ridiculous. But no, there were three or four people wandering by. No, I knew, we knew we were going to go and swim. So Fiona took a swimming costume. I took my yep. trunks Very and good. we went in swimming with the dog. Um, Beautiful. And all I will say, I'll tell you, this is a nice jolly thing. It, it felt in the alpine air it f- and the water was so fresh and so cool. It felt like pre global warming world but then i looked across at where the glaciers normally are dominant and they didn't look quite so dominant and we need to hear more about the dog next time look forward to talking to you all tomorrow 